Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Therefore, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, and to wearing sackcloth. Instead, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. You guessed it. In preaching the resurrection in 1 Corinthians, Paul is explaining and applying the judgment of Isaiah chapter 22 to the church. However, what's really clever is that the phrase in Isaiah let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die, was also used by Roman gladiators on the eve of battle. Interesting that the people of Israel, and now the church in Roman Corinth, share the same understanding of life and death as the Roman pagans. Do not be deceived, Paul explains. Bad company corrupts good morals. Richard and I conclude our discussion of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 120 of the Bible as Literature podcast. As we mentioned last week, we're going to quickly take the second half of 1 Corinthians 15 today. And the theme is apropos because in the Eastern churches, we just celebrated Christ's resurrection. So we'll dive right into this week's text. Otherwise, Paul says in verse 29, referring to the question of the resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? So the question is, do they really understand what baptism means? You know, baptism we understand as entering into the death of Jesus Christ, but a lot of times we act as if this is just our stamp of approval that we are in fact Christians and this proves it. Does getting baptized prove that you're a Christian? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? He's looking at this rejection of the teaching, this grocery shopping mentality that you can somehow accept the gospel without accepting the proclamation of the resurrection. And he's asking, if you don't accept this proclamation, which challenges you to care for those who went before you and also to care for those who come after you by the way that you live, why are you concerned 
about baptism for the sake of catechumens who died before they were baptized. Well, and if you believe in baptism as the something that does something on its own, then you're not concerned about the resurrection. Resurrection is about this judgment. When we read about resurrection elsewhere in Scripture, it's being raised up for the sake of judgment. So there's a contradiction, first of all, that they're not accepting the proclamation of the resurrection, but yet they're concerned somehow about the well-being of those who have died. And then there's the implication that you've teased out, Richard, that they, in performing baptism for the dead, without accepting the teaching of the resurrection in the gospel, are trying to raise the dead by the work of their own hands. So it becomes another kind of idolatry. It's an inconsistency in the way that they're living, and it's an idolatry. And the funny thing is, Paul will point out very quickly that this inconsistency and this rejection of the content of the teaching leads them to a life that is divergent from his life of suffering, which is a recurring theme in 1 Corinthians. So he continues, why are we also in danger every hour? And the we here refers to Paul. It does not refer to the people he's addressing. Because the question that he's addressing is, if baptism is the main thing, then why bother suffering afterwards? Because if the thing that needs to happen is baptism, Paul can say, I took care of that a long time ago. So then what's this ongoing work that Paul has to do? Paul is focusing on the ongoing work because if you are baptized and think now it's time to sit back, then it's as if you've forgotten about the judgment that's going to happen at the resurrection. When Paul says he is continuing to work, it's because he understands that there's a judgment that comes after. It's not, were you baptized correctly or not? It's, did you continue to be loyal to this teaching until your last breath? This is what resurrection is going to show when resurrection happens at the judgment. I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. In other words, I, on the other hand, am facing the consequence of the content of the gospel so that you can be the first fruits of my death. We're getting down to the business of what resurrection is all about. You have to produce disciples. It is for the generation not yet born. The way that Paul is able to give this teaching to his people so that they have something to boast in, he has to suffer constantly. He has to deny his own ego. He can't go off and have a nice vacation on the seaside Because if he does this, there's no teaching for the people and there's nothing then for them to boast in. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If I'm dying daily for human gain, I'm a moron. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there's no judgment, if there's no resurrection to judgment, then just enjoy your life and then die. If you don't accept the content of the gospel, your life has no purpose and no meaning. That's the radicality of the statement. He is giving your life purpose and giving you meaning by giving you God's commandment. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You want to hang out with wealthy CEOs and go to their parties and hobnob with the Roman patrician while he abuses women and makes fun of poor people? Don't tell me that you aren't being corrupted by him because your disregard for those who have gone before you and your disregard for those who come after you, your bloody individualism demonstrates to me that you're a pagan and that you've been corrupted by eating the meat offered to idols. 
become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. Stop it! For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. When you're spending time with people who have no knowledge of God, which means no knowledge of Torah, we see this in Hosea, they're the same thing. If you have no knowledge of Torah, then your morals, meaning the actions that are produced by loyalty towards the teaching, are going to be producing no more fruit. There's nothing more for you to produce. And therefore, it's going to be all about your baptism that's going to make you feel safe so that you can go and do whatever you want for the rest of your time. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? And I've heard theologians talk about these questions. Here's Paul's response. You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow to the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. So all you can produce is the seed. You can't produce your life after the resurrection. And what he's emphasizing is that it doesn't work unless you die. This is why Paul continues to suffer for the teaching. It's not until he sows a seed with his last breath, with his broken body, with his last breath. Only with that is the seed planted, and only from that can life come. And this is the power of the Pauline school, of the anti-idolatry school. And there is no teaching that matches the ingenuity of this teaching because you are presented with the victory of Christ, but you are not allowed to realize the victory of Christ. On Pascha, you still have the cross standing between you and glory. And it's a real buzzkill. If you have not been crucified yet, you cannot talk about the resurrection. You have no reference for God's power. Your only reference for God's power is the only way that it is manifest in the content of Scripture, which is as instruction. That's what 1 Corinthians is all about. The church in 1 Corinthians wants to revel in the victory of Christ, and Paul said, with all due respect, what about the instruction of Christ that you have to die? And when you want to talk about God's power, you can't have any other reference, otherwise you will become Hitler. You will become the patrician and the abuser. It makes no sense if today I plan out what's my life in heaven going to be like and what am I going to look like once I'm in heaven when I've conveniently skipped over the judgment that happens at the resurrection exactly. and therefore conveniently neglected those things on which I'm going to be judged. Look at modern Christianity. Someone dies, everyone says, oh, he wanted us to be happy and he's in a better place now. And then we go the following Easter to talk about the resurrection. We skip over the part of judgment again and we say, it's so nice, Jesus rose from the dead, everyone should be relieved. No, you shouldn't be relieved because the resurrection is the resurrection of the one whom you condemned to death. And he is now coming to set the books in order and he is the Lord's Messiah who is sent from God's holy mountain to establish order upon the earth. And you're relieved? Are you nuts? You are the fool in Paul's letter. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. This is what we were saying. 
you are confusing the glory of the flesh with the glory of the divine and you can't do that and i like the fact that he used the word heavenly because the heavens in the pauline school are the thing you can't conceive or grasp or reach god is the only one who knows what's going to happen after the judgment god is the one that determines whether you're resurrected to life or to death So don't presume that you're going to have a heavenly body. Different people, different creatures have a body that God determines based on how he created them in the beginning. In other words, stop troubling yourself with things that are out of scope for you, too great and too marvelous for you. Focus on today's work, which is following the gospel, and let God decide what kind of body you're going to have. God sets eternity in man's heart, but man cannot grasp it. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So if even among the flesh and among the created realm, flesh is differentiated and it has different types of glory, how much greater is the difference in glory between things that pertain to God and things that pertain to the flesh? So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. But here, the glory in which it is raised, you can't grasp. So don't make it into your fleshly glory. The way that the Roman is thinking is that being humiliated and going through the tribulations that Paul is going through demonstrates a lack of power and a lack of glory. And what Paul is emphasizing here is that the reason for you to be born is so that you can die. But during the course of your life, you have a duty to follow God's teaching. Once you do die, God will then decide to raise you and judge whether you follow the teaching or not. And so understanding that Being baptized and imagining yourself sitting on a cloud for eternity is not the point. The point is, what are you going to do during the short time that you have, and what actions are you going to perform during this time? It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And again, what you perceive as weakness is power. Paul keeps trying to drive this wedge in your mind between your concept of power and your concept of authority, and your concept of glory, and your inability to grasp what this means from the perspective of God. The power comes after. The beauty, the glory, it comes after. Right now, you're living in order to die. Don't try and look so good now. And if you're living in order to die, you cannot glory over anyone else's flesh. That is what he is driving at. Exactly. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. In other words, the natural body has an analog, the spiritual body. But don't pretend you can discuss or understand what the spiritual body is. You obviously don't know what a spiritual body is because you haven't been behaving as one who is spiritual. And we've said over and over again that in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere, to be spiritual means to walk according to the spirit of the content of the Bible. The spirit is what animates your body. If you have a good spirit, then you go and perform good actions. If you have a spirit of God, you perform godly actions. If you have a bad spirit, you perform bad actions. So the judgment then is, what kind of spirit do you have? Well, this is going to be manifested in your body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. 
the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. A soul here, a psyche in 1 Corinthians, passes away. That's the key. The first Adam was passing away. God breathed life into him, and then God took the breath away. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit for the generation yet unborn because he was animated by the Spirit of God. He was spiritual. Not psyche, but pneumaticos. The psyche just makes sure that you aren't dead, that you're able to move around. But the spirit is what motivates you and is expressed in your actions. Because the spirit of God, unlike the soul of Adam, does not die. However, the spiritual is not first but the natural, then the spiritual, meaning that you can't talk about what it's going to be like to be truly a spiritual body until you've been crucified to death. So just quit it with your realized eschatology. It's not only tiresome, it's destructive. Triumphalism and realized eschatology is the uber expression of human self-righteousness. Just stop it. The first man is from the earth, earthy, the second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy, parenthetically, all of you who are listening, you're going to die. And anyone who doesn't remind you of that on Pascha is not reading 1 Corinthians. And as is the heavenly, so are also those who are heavenly. And you are not heavenly yet, because as far as I look, you are a kind of flesh, different from the animals, but you're still in need of God not withdrawing your breath. The only chance you have is if you, through your actions, demonstrate the spirit that you have. And if the spirit you demonstrate through your actions is more like the heavenly, you know, maybe then things will end up okay for you. It's up to God. But if the things you do reflect an earthly spirit, then you have a much smaller shot. So guess what? Don't focus on baptism. Focus on the actions that you're performing day to day. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, meaning you have to suffer and die because that's how God's power is expressed in an earthy context, we also bear the image of the heavenly. Because when you suffer for the instruction of God in an earthy context, you are also a sign of the dominion of the heavenly, of the heavenly spirit. Because this is how the heavenly spirit animates you in an earthy setting. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Plainly, he says it in verse 50. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So you have to die. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And here, what Paul is doing is explaining once again what he said about the coming of the Messiah. Jesus will come, and he will wield the Torah, and every human institution, every human power and principality will submit to God's instruction, which means ultimately you will submit unto the destruction of your flesh. He's talking about you being conquered. You have to submit because they are concerned, uh-oh, maybe the dead might be in worse off shape than us. 
we have to make sure we're baptized on their behalf. And he's saying, uh, actually, the people who are dead are closer because they've already died. They've already put off the physical. Their body is already dead. You are actually going to have to change more than them. So let's just hope that you are able to become dead enough to inherit that which is spiritual, that which is heavenly. That's the key about baptism for the dead. It's the hubris of the Corinthians because they believe, because they believe in the flesh, that they're better off with a psyche still living. And that's the sin. The attitude towards the dead has to be not to save them because they've already gone before you in the hope of the resurrection. The attitude has to be to honor their death by what you do for subsequent generations. So there is a care for the dead, but the dead are in a better position than you. If they died following Torah and you're fussing around baptism and you've got many years ahead of you, you need to make sure those years are dedicated to Torah or else you don't stand nearly as much of a chance as those people who are already dead. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because now, for those who understand that there is a fleshly body, a material body, and a body that is according to the gospel, that is spiritual, and they know that they can participate in the heavenly kingdom of the Messiah by dying, what does death gain by swallowing you? Thumb your nose at that which can kill you and do what is correct in spite of it. Paul is saying that the Messiah is going to overcome death by baptizing everyone which means sinking their ships, which means putting them to death. So then death will have nothing left to consume. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning that the consequence in Deuteronomy for sin is death, and this consequence is given power by the Torah, which shows you the consequence and enforces it. So your only hope, since we know you can't do the works of the Torah, because while you're convinced that you're better off because you don't commit what you call big sins, you still ate shellfish last week. Your best chance is the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. The only reason you would be upset about death is because you don't have full faith in God that God is the one who gives life. So why is death such a bad thing? Well, I really don't want to die. Why? You know, you die. Everyone's going to die. Just make sure you live the life that God would have you do. And then it's only your sin that would give death this power to make you sad because you're living for what is good, even unto your own death. And the power of sin is the law. Like you said, oh, I'm not following this. Oh, I'm not following that. The point is live as you can with faith in God that there will be a way that he can give life. It's not up to you to give life. It's up to God to give life. Stop troubling yourself with things too great and too marvelous for your little human brain. Because look at Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died. He gave him life. Jesus was not worried about dying. Everything worked out for him. <laughs> Do you not have faith in the resurrection? Do you not have faith in the crucifixion? Therefore, my beloved children, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And here, I can't help but think of the beautiful passage in Matthew about the lilies of the field. Stop worrying. Don't fuss about baptism. Fuss about how you're going to live the rest of your days after your baptism. Just trust your one Father who is in the heavens, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for your sake. Trust 
that just as he did not abandon Jesus, he will not abandon you. And in the meantime, do what he is asking you to do, and it will be well with you. And where have I heard that phraseology before? It wasn't in the New Testament. Just do what the Lord commands, and the Lord will take care of the business on your behalf. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Christos Anesti. Christos Anesti. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.